Those of you who have been with us over these past weeks will know that we have anchored our fall series around a key verse from the Old Testament from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 6, verse 16. And for those who are ambitious, uh, we've tried to commit that verse to memory. How are you doing with that? Jeremiah 6, 16. Remember the Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is. And then walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. So we've been figuring out what that pathway looks like. The earliest designation for the followers of Jesus, they were called the people of the way. There were people in motion. And their journey was described by a series of practices, of attitudes of the heart and attitudes of the mind, disciplines and, uh, and decisions uh, by a spirit that pervaded them and their activities. And, and we've looked at those over those past, these past weeks. But we come this morning, as we just mentioned here, to the one word that applies uniquely to the life of a follower of Jesus, and it's the word rebirth. I thought we'd start today with some baby photos. Everybody likes baby photos, right? So let's share some baby photos. What a stunner that young man is. (laughs) Any thoughts? Who might that be? How did you know it was Sheldon? Because it looks like him. That is Pastor Sheldon. He looks pastoral already, doesn't he? He's got a nice collared shirt, buttoned up. There it is. How about this next one? Uh, Pastor Richard? Well, maybe, no. Uh, More administrative flair in her eyes. That's our church's admin assistant. That's Sandy Samuel. Hey, Sandy. How about this one? Uh, she's singing. She's sing- Who said it? Rochelle. There she is. Hey, Rochelle, you haven't changed a day. Yeah, okay. And this last one. There he is. Who could that be? Now, there is a telltale sign, is there? Hmm. <laughs> Maybe not. Who's that? Nathan. Who said Nathan? How did you know? Oh, process of elimination, right? We're only embarrassing the staff. It's got to be one of the ones who's left. That is Pastor Nathan. And Nathan, where is that taken? Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea. You know Nathan was born in the mission field in Papua New Guinea. Yeah. As we come to the consideration of our subject for today. Uh, no, there's no picture of me. What do you think? Uh, <laughs> No, 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 no. That's what you get when you're in charge. (laughs) As we think about birth and rebirth, there is one discourse, there is one conversation in the Bible that gets to the heart of that with greater clarity than any other. We're going to spend our time this morning in the familiar passages of the Gospel of John in the third chapter. If people know nothing of the Bible, they tend to know this. And if they've heard anything from the Bible, they've probably heard this in John chapter 3. And rather than teach on it, uh, I thought it would be good to relive 
the moment, to, to immerse ourselves in it, to, to describe what it must have been like to be part of that conversation. So if you can, I want to picture this setting with you. There's a man who is waiting in the shadows. He has a conversation that needs to happen, but it needs to happen under the cover of darkness. And so he waits for nightfall. And he sits and he looks out the second floor window of his house. He's sipping away on olive leaf tea or whatever they sipped away on. He's watching the sunset and he's biding his time. Nicodemus is his name. He's an old man by now. As he's watching the sun set across the slate roofs of Jerusalem, he looks down into that enormous courtyard outside of what is now preserved as the western wall of the Jerusalem temple. He walked that courtyard that very morning. He'll walk it again the next morning. He'll gather with all the religious leaders of his day and they'll, they'll do what religious leaders do. They'll, they'll talk about God. They'll talk about reaching God and pleasing God and appeasing God. He's a Pharisee, and that's what the Pharisees do. They converse about God. And Nicodemus sits in the privileged position as one of the Pharisees, debating and pondering and solving puzzles and resolving dilemmas. Is sandal tying allowed on the, on the Sabbath? Can, can you feed people who don't work for a living? What about divorcing your wife, dishonoring your parents? What does God say? It's Nicodemus's job to know the answer to those questions and a thousand more. He is a holy man, and he leads holy men. And his name appears on the elite list of scholars of the ancient Torah, the wisdom of God. He's dedicated his life to studying what you hold in your hands as the Old Testament of the Bible. He occupies one of the 71 seats in the Jerusalem Supreme Court. And so here's a man with credentials, and he has clout. And tonight, he has questions. Specifically, he has questions for a young Galilean teacher a rabbi who, it turns out, is quite a crowd stopper. And you wouldn't expect it because he's from nowhere land, Nazareth, in the middle of the Mediterranean Peninsula. He doesn't have any diplomas, he lacks credentials, but he attracts people. He's unpredictable, certainly. He tends to hang out with, I guess what we would call the happy hour crowd, And he just doesn't have a lot of time for the clergy, for the religious upper crust of society. He banishes demons, some people have said. He forgives sins, other people have claimed. He purifies temples. Nicodemus has no doubt about that one because he was there. He saw firsthand what, what, what Jesus did as he purged the temple courtyard, Solomon's porch. He saw it firsthand. He saw the fury, a braided whip flying as he said, there will be no racketeering in my house, in the house of God. And by the time the dust all settled and the coins all landed, the man from Nazareth, he had won no favors among the religious leaders that day. But then there's Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes at night. 
None of his colleagues can know about this meeting. They, they probably wouldn't understand. And so as the shadows begin to darken the city, he steps out. He comes to the door of a simple house where people say Jesus and his followers were staying, and he knocks. And then the room grows silent as he enters. The men inside, they're a, boy, they're a strange lot. There's dock workers and tax collectors, but none of them are accustomed to this highbrow world of, of religious scholars and, and elite officials. And so they're kind of uncomfortable, shifting away in their seats. Jesus motions for Nicodemus to come in and have a seat. And as he does, he initiates the most famous conversation recorded in the Bible. Nicodemus starts. If you want to follow along, we're in the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 3 and verse 2. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God was not with him. Nicodemus begins with what he knows. I've done my homework on you, he implies. And your work, your work impresses me. And you'd expect a similar kind of response back from Jesus. And I've heard of you too, Nicodemus. And a little bit of hospitable chit-chat, some back and forth. But, but none of that comes. In fact, Jesus doesn't make any mention of Nicodemus's VIP credentials. Doesn't talk about his status or his academic background, or even his good intentions. Not because they don't exist, but in Jesus' algorithm, in the mathematics of the kingdom, they just don't matter. So instead, he issues a proclamation. It's right there in verse 3. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That's where it starts. The language of rebirth. No one can see the kingdom unless they are born again. This is, like, this is like the continental divide of Scripture. This is the international date line of the faith. Nicodemus is on one side, Jesus is on the other, and he's going to pull no punches about the difference between the two sides. Because over here, Nicodemus lives in this land of good efforts and, and sincere gestures, but Jesus' response is, that your best, even your very best, isn't good enough. That your finest effort isn't fine enough. Nicodemus has this philosophy that says, you give God your best, God does the rest. And Jesus responds saying, unless you are born again, unless you just start over completely with God at the heart of your life, you're not even going to be able to see what God is up to. And Nicodemus hesitates, as we all would. And he responds as we probably would as well. Huh? (laughs) How is it that someone can be born again, especially when they're old, he says in verse 4. I mean, you've got to be kidding. Do we put life in reverse? Do we we rewind the tape? Is there a do-over? We can't be born again. But, But how much we'd like to, right? I mean, how wouldn't we like at different points in our lives to have a do-over, like a mulligan? Who wouldn't want a mulligan for the past year and a half? A do-over. A chance to avoid all the broken hearts and the missed opportunities that were dragging behind us. Who wouldn't appreciate a second shot? But, but how do you pull it off? 
And so Nicodemus, he kind of scrunches his chin and strokes his beard and asks, I mean, surely you don't mean that you can enter your, your mother's womb a second time and be born. And Jesus doesn't miss a beat. Very truly I tell you, have a look, verse 5. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. And just about that time, in that very moment, a gust of wind blows in through the open door and, and Jesus picks up the scattered leaves that the wind carries and says, the power of God is like this, it's like wind, you don't see it. But it's always at work, he explains. Newborn hearts. These are hearts that are born from heaven above. You can't wish for one. You can't earn one. You can't create one. New birth. God does all the work from start to finish. But boy, Nicodemus, he's got, he's got no frame of reference for those kind of ideas. This is an entirely new and different language from anything he's heard before, anything anyone has heard before. Not works born of men and women, but a work done by God, a work that comes from above. Think about it for a second. Birth is, birth is a passive act for the child. I'm not going to suggest it's passive for the mother. I'll get marched out of here by an angry mob. But it's passive for the child. I mean, a child in the womb is not in charge of the delivery. And they contribute really nothing except their arrival. Birth is the work of the mother. She exerts all the effort. She pushes. She agonizes. She delivers. It's the mother who pays the price for the child being born. In fact, it's the mother who's paid the price all the way along. Without the umbilical cord tethering the child to its mother, it couldn't even possibly survive, let alone navigate the pathway to life in the world. Nor... Jesus is saying, nor can we. Spiritual rebirth requires a capable parent, not a capable infant. And who's the parent? Let me do just a quick little word study. I said we weren't going to do a lot of teaching, but this is, this is exciting and it's important. A little word study, and then we'll immerse ourselves in the story again. That famous expression, born again. Let's focus not on the first word, born, but on the second word, again. Because in the language of Jesus' day, there are two options for how you could speak the word we translate again. The first is the word palin. Palin means repetition. To do it over and over and over again. This is what was done first. This is the repetition. We do it again. That's one word. Here's the other word. The word is anothen, which also means a repeated action. But it goes back to the original source to repeat it. And so sometimes you'll see in your translation, this is rendered as born from above, born from a higher place, repeated from the original source. The difference, if you'd like, between the two is, let's imagine, let's imagine the the famous painting of Da Vinci, the Mona Lisa. Suppose that you and I are standing there in the Louvre Museum, admiring the Mona Lisa, and inspired by the work, I get out my canvas and my palette and my brushes and say, I'm going to paint this beautiful portrait again. And I do. Right there in the middle of the Salle des Etats, 
I wave around my paintbrushes and I create the Mona Lisa, but, but I am no Leonardo da Vinci. I'm not even a Picasso, though, though it looks a little bit like it. Crooked nose and one eye out of place. And, and technically, yeah, I've painted a version of the Mona Lisa, but it's a poor substitute for the original. Jesus means something else. That word anaphen means this is the work of the original artist. And for that word to apply, if we were in the Louvre, da Vinci himself would have to be present to paint the canvas all over again. Here's the idea. The one who did it first has to do it again. The original creator recreating the creation. That's the act that Jesus describes it. So in that expression, born again, there's two parts. Born, meaning God exerts all the effort. This is the work of the parent, not the child. And again, meaning it's God who restores the original beauty in our lives. Born again. We don't try again. This is not exerting our muscles again. This is the miracle of God, born again. And that thought stopped Nicodemus in his tracks. How could this possibly be? He says in verse 9. And so Jesus answers him and leads him to the very pinnacle, the mountaintop of Scripture. Let me invite you to say it with me. For God so loved the world. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. As one writer several years ago put it, Max Lucado said, here you have a 26-word parade of hope that begins with God and ends with life and urges us to do the same. It's brief enough that you can write it on a napkin and memorize it in a moment, but it's solid enough that it can weather 2,000 years of storms and questions. And if you know nothing of the Bible, you should start here. And if you know everything in the Bible, you should return here because we all need the reminder that the heart of the human problem is the heart of the human And God's treatment is prescribed here in John 3.16. He loves, he gave, we believe, and we live. What a great quote. Those words, John 3.16, they are to Scripture what I guess the St. Lawrence River is to Canada. They are an entry into the heartland of the country. They are an entry into the heartland of faith. You can believe them or you can dismiss them. You can embrace them. You can reject them. But any serious consideration of Jesus Christ must include them. It's kind of like, it's like an alphabet of faith. It's a table of contents to the Christian faith. Each word is a little safety deposit box into which God entrusts his precious gifts. So let's spend just a few minutes, maybe five minutes, and let's tease apart the words. God so loved the world. 
you really would expect, and everybody in that day and age had every right to expect, a God who is fueled by anger. A God who punishes the world, who recycles the world, who forsakes the world. Nobody imagined a God who loves the world. A loving God. No precedent for that. And what is it that God loves? The world. This this world. I mean, the whole world. Squarely there in the crosshairs of God. Heartbreakers and hope killers, and everyone who's guilty of all of those kind of mistakes and evil backhandedness, all of that that populates the world. Dictators rage and abusers inflict pain, but God still loves this world. And he loves it so much that that he gives what? Not his declarations or his edicts or his rules, or not just them. Here you have the really the heart-stilling claim of Jesus that God gave his son, his only son. No abstract ideas here. This is God in flesh. Scripture equates Jesus to God. God then gives his very own self. Why did he do it? That whoever believes in him should not perish. Just stop on that word whoever for a moment. A universal word. Whoever. Maybe when you read that verse, you want to stop there and insert your own name. You are the whoever. Insert that word before you come to the next word, the word perish, because Well, that's the hard word, isn't it? That's the sobering word, should not perish. That's the word we would love to dilute or delete, but Jesus refuses to do so. Instead, he pounds these no-enter signs all over the gates of hell, over every square inch of Satan's domain. He says, do not enter. And then he offers up his own body to prevent people from going there. Still, there are some souls that insist. And in the end, some perish, some live. And what determines the difference? Not talent, not pedigree, not possessions. Nicodemus had all those things in abundance. The difference is determined here by belief. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Nathan, I thought you'd like this because it comes from the mission field, from the work of translators that I know your family have been enmeshed in now for, for decades. But there was a Bible translator, a man named John Patton, who, who was really struggling. He was working in the New Hebrides Islands, and he was trying to find the the appropriate indigenous language word for that verb, belief. I mean, if ever there were one that you wanted to get right, because everything hangs on understanding what this means, it's that word, that concept, to believe in Jesus. 
And he says he accidentally came upon the solution one day when he was out hunting with one of the local tribesmen. The two bagged a large deer and they hung it from a pole and they carried it back on their shoulders to the village. And when they got home exhausted, when they reached the veranda, they plopped it down there on the ground and they sat in their porch chairs. And as they did so, the tribesmen exclaimed in the native language of his people, my, how good it is to stretch yourself out and rest. And immediately Patton reached for a paper and pencil and he wrote down the phrase. And as a result, his translation of John 3.16 was worded like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever stretches themselves out on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Stretch out on Christ and rest. Martin Luther, the, the great old reformer from 500 years ago, was late in life suffering from catastrophic headaches. He was bedridden because of them. He was offered medication often to relieve the pain, but he would decline again and again and explain, my best prescription for head and heart is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life the best prescription for head and heart. I mean, who wouldn't benefit from a dose? As it turns out, old Nicodemus took his share of the prescription. And we know at the end of the story of Jesus, at the end of the gospel, Nicodemus appears again. When Jesus is crucified, it's old Nicodemus who shows up to care for the body of his friend and his savior. And then along with Joseph of, of Arimathea, another one of the religious elders who laid it all on Jesus, who learned to stretch out and rest on him, the two of them oversaw Jesus' burial. No small gesture. And don't forget the, the anti-Jesus sentiment of the day. And yet they stepped out and did that. And then when word hit the streets that Jesus was out of the tomb and he was back on his feet, don't you think Nicodemus must have smiled and thought back to that midnight chat? Born again. Born again. Who would have thought, Jesus? Who would have thought that you'd start with yourself? born again. What about you? I'm going to invite you to close your heads, to unfold your hands and place them open on your lap, facing upward, because I want you to receive from God his gifts for you in this moment. Heavenly Father, you have lavished on your world Grace upon grace upon grace. Nowhere do we see it with quite the clarity that we find right here. As we hold up the hope diamond of the Bible, 
For God, you so loved the world. As we read that word, whoever, God, would you reach down and take us by the hand? Each one of those outstretched palms, would you grasp them and call us by name? Whoever means you. God so loved you that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, God himself in flesh. And with God reaching down to grasp you by the hand, it takes only a small nudge of reaching back to clasp it and respond, saying that whosoever Lord is going to be me today. And the word believe, that's going to be my word for today. And if I've never spoken it before, I want to speak it with an emphasis that I have never found in my life. I believe in you, Lord Jesus, Savior, Master, Friend, and Savior. And I place my life, my hope, my trust, my forever into your hands. And if it's been a long time since you've spoken that word with real conviction, belief, speak it again in these moments so God can hear it. Lord, in you, in Christ, I believe. And then stretch yourself out on Jesus and find rest for your soul. Lord Jesus, you are Lord not only over history, not only over creation, but over each minute part of it. And that means us and that means now. We know that you have heard every prayer in this moment. And that heaven is rejoicing with some who have spoken the words of belief for the first time. God, I pray that alongside the many gifts that you have deposited into their life, you would deposit one more. A gift of boldness. Give them the courage to speak out about the decision they've made. To follow the example of those who have led the way this morning in a public declaration of faith, in a celebration and baptism, in walking hand in hand with you down the path of discipleship. God, those ancient pathways. But we have stood at the crossroads and we have looked and we found you. And in you we found the good way. From here on out, we will walk in it and find rest for our souls. God, hear us for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.